Hello, this is one of several interviews for the students studying in the MSc in Sustainable Resources at UCL. My name is David Bent and I'm an honorary lecturer at the UCL Institute for Sustainable Resources and co-lead for the module on Innovation in Business and Sustainability. Most of the course gives people the latest academic theory and insights. These 30-minute interviews are with practitioners to give some of the grit under the fingernails of innovating for sustainability today. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by Paul Miller, who is one of the managing partners of Bethnal Green Ventures, which is a tech for good venture capital firm. Hello, Paul. Hey. Hello. Really good to see you. Great to see you too. So uh, first off, what is your role and organisation? Well, my role is a managing partner and um, and CEO of a company called Bethnal Green Ventures. Um, And what we do at BGV is invest in early stage companies, often just ideas, to be honest, uh, that are trying to have a positive impact using technology. So we call ourselves a a tech for good uh, VC firm. Cool. And so there's a little bit of non-licature we need to unpack for people. Early stage. So there's often people talk about so pre-seed and like unpack that piece of jargon for us. What does early stage yeah. mean? It, venture capital is a area prone to jargon, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> so um, when, I, when I say early stage, I basically mean... Uh, yeah, things that are a bit more than an idea, but they're, they're usually a team of two or three people who come to us with, I would say, a prototype of something. So they, they might have built something that shows the, the, the promise of a particular kind of technology to solve a particular problem. And I think that's something we'll come back to. It's like, mm. that. How, do, how, do you think, how do we think about problems? Because that's quite an important thing. But yeah, so it's, it's typically a, a team of two or three people. They might be just in the process of setting up a company. They might have... Um, you know, thought a bit about like what the business model is, who the who the customers are, and things like that. But they almost certainly won't be making any money yet. They almost certainly won't have any employees beyond themselves yet. All those kinds of things. So, uh, in 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 the VC jargon, yeah, we're we're a pre-seed investor. Cool. Um, and then so help unpack for us. What does it mean to be a managing partner? So, what's your role in the organisation? <laughs> It means it's my fault, I think. Um, so um, I, I, I helped set up at um, BGV, but ultimately in, in venture capital firms, um, you have a small number of people uh, who are ultimately responsible for the investment, so or the, the performance of the investment. So um, we are the people who the Financial Conduct Authority uh, checks in on. Uh, we're, the, we're the people that... Uh, our, our investors uh, check in on so we're the it's a bit like the directors of a company if you're talking about just a normal company but most um, venture capital firms are actually structured as partnerships so hence the managing partner rather than kind of managing director and there's i mean i feel like i should know this but limited partner general partner there's a, an extra layer of jargon there to unpack around v- v- vc funds so help us understand that yeah, so limited partners are the investors in venture capital funds. So that could be um, a company or a sort of high net worth individual, or in, in the case of big um, venture capital firms, could be pension funds, insurance firms, all those kinds of people. So they're the limited partners. They don't have any say in the day to day decisions of that fund. So they don't actually decide what it invests in. They just uh, agree to provide capital with a, a particular investment mandate, so a, a strategy, if you like, for investing, but they don't get involved in the individual decisions. 
the uh, general partner is usually that's usually um, either a, a person or a company that is the coordinator, if you like, of the of the of the venture capital firm, um, and they are they are responsible for decisions. Um, managing partner is, is is more of a fluid term, to be honest. It's not a legal term, but um, often the people who work for the general partner company are often you know, the senior people there are often known as managing partners. Sure. And that also points to another part of the legal structure here, that there's a company called Bethnal Green Ventures and you have funds and that an investor is putting money into a fund which you control. Is that the right way to understand it? Yes, exactly. And um, they, uh, we have multiple funds going at once as well. So, so um, we've... Uh, We've run a whole bunch of funds and they, they tend to invest for a period, so usually a few years. Um, and then uh, once the once the initial investments are made, they move into a different phase and you probably start another fund that will start making initial investments. So um, and, and it could be that those two funds have different investors in them. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's quite it's quite common that you have different investors in different funds because you know people want to invest at different times. So um, so yeah, so that's the, the way it tends to work. So you, you have what are often known as vintages. So you, you have a, a 2012 vintage fund, 2016 vintage fund, or whatever it might be. And um, we, as a firm, we manage all those those funds, uh, but we probably have a different role based on how old that fund is and what stage of its life it's in. And potentially, each fund has a different uh, mandate or thesis about what its focus is as well. Yes, that's true. In, in our case, that's it, we don't. So every, every fund we've run has had exactly the same thesis, which is around tech for good. So we believe that by investing in technology businesses that have a positive impact, we'll be backing the most successful firms in the future because we think that you know being able to demonstrate that you had a positive impact, social, environmental impact, is going to become more and more important for the most successful firms. And so. By getting in there early and investing early, we believe we can achieve superior returns um, by, by doing that. And that's always been our thesis. Great. That leads us nicely on to the next question. How is sustainability framed in Bethnal Green Ventures? What does it mean to have a positive impact from your point of view? Yeah, it's, a, it's um, the way we think about it is that the, the, having a positive impact, you, you've got to be intentional about it. So you, you've got to actually set out to do it. You can't do it accidentally. Um, <laughs> or it, it's not enough that you are having accidental. Exactly. And for us, that's... Uh, so when we're, when we're looking at you know, founders coming to us, we're, we're, sort of, you know, we're asking them, okay, what, what are you trying to achieve? What's, what's mm. the impact you're trying to achieve? And then we want to know, well, how are you going to know whether you've achieved it? So that's, that comes to measurement. So for us, the two key words are it's got to be intentional and measurable. Um, now, there are lots of different things that you can be intentional about solving or yeah. impact you can have. We're, we're a bit more agnostic about what that is. We, you know, it, it, for us, we, we have three large themes, if you like, which are a sustainable planet, an inclusive society and healthy lives. They're quite general, to be honest. But what we find is that uh, founders tend to come to us with a much more specific problem and then be able to tell us, and we'll know if we've solved it, or we'll know if we've improved that situation by the, by this. So that tends to be the way it, it works. Um, and then, into, yeah, the, in terms of the measurability, they often have very different measurements as well. So, yeah. you know, something that's trying to 
increased biodiversity will have a very different measurement from something that's trying to reduce diabetes you know and and again that's fine by us we we don't try and measure the impact of the whole lot as in one number we we just report back to our investors what's the impact each individual startup has had we don't try to aggregate it in any way really um so yeah it's fine for us for the for the ventures to choose their own way of measuring their impact we we try to make sure that that's solid and that like you know it's it's in a, it's mm. something that people will understand um, but we don't try and aggregate it all together into one number which some funds do but that's just not our approach at BGV no and i mean what is what makes for a good enough impact then so people have intention it's measurable there's a broad sense of sustainable planet inclusive economy and healthy lives there are, there are lots of things which might do a bit of those things but are you also are you looking do you want to look for a threshold where somebody has to be having a, a degree of impact which is more than just small yeah so we i don't wouldn't say that we define that threshold but mm. we've set up a system that tries to ensure it which is essentially it's it's competitive mm. so you know we have hundreds of people approaching us each time uh, we open up for applications and we choose roughly speaking the top 10 every six months mm -hmm. so essentially we're going to be picking what we think are potentially the 10 most impactful ventures so so if you come along with an idea where it's only got a sort of marginal impact you're probably up against people who have got, got an idea of something that has a larger or potentially a larger impact mm. And we'll choose that. So, so the incentives are essentially to come to us with uh, with ventures that you do believe can have like a really a really big impact. So, I wouldn't say there's a threshold, but there is a competitive system built in that means that we're we're trying to make sure we select the most impactful ventures in the long run. Great, thank you. So let's move on. That's got a lot of framing which is needed for us, and then let's let's try to see if we can get you to tell a story. Of a good example of your work, but can you tell us a story, perhaps it's of an investment or one of the things that you've been doing? Um, well, so we've invested in well over 150 companies now, so it's <laughs> quite a lot of stories. Yes, we don't need 150 um, stories, perhaps two or three is plenty. Yeah, uh, well, um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one that I think illustrates something. So it's actually quite an early investment for us. Um, I think there's often a bit of tension in the investments that we make uh, that, that, that go on to be successful. And that's either um, a tension with like the way that things are done now or potentially a tension like in, in, a, in a particular industry. Um, and this was, this was way back when in, uh, I think, 2012, when uh, a small team came to us and said, like, you know how bad things are in the consumer electronics industry mm -hmm. in terms of, um, you know, essentially uh, sort of really bad uh, conditions in the mines in in, in Africa where, mm -hmm. where the, the minerals come from, poor working conditions in the factories in China where much of the consumer electronics is made and phones are made. And uh, they're terrible from a sustainability point of view because there's sort of almost built-in obsolescence whereby everybody might just, you know, gets rid of their phone after a year. Um, and they said, well, we've, we've, we're, we're campaigners. We've been trying to change this by talking to the firms, talking to the regulators, all that kind of thing. And actually, we've come to the conclusion that nobody really wants to change it. Mm. So um, we think we're going to have to build our own phone company. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
we said, okay. Uh, and at the time, it was, you know, there were no other manufacturers really other than Apple, Samsung, Nokia, remember mm-hmm. them. Um, and we said, okay, we, you know, we, our first investment is 15,000 pounds. That doesn't sound quite like quite enough. And they said, yes, we know, but, um, actually we, you know, we, we think there's, there might be a way around that as well. So I went and asked people and sort of, uh, friends and colleagues who had, knew about the mobile phone industry and they said yeah no that, that's mad there's no way that there's going to be a like a new entrant a new ethical entrant into the into the, into the phone company and but it felt like when i when i asked people if they would buy a fairer mobile phone if mm-hmm. this became known as fair phone um lots of people said yes and I was like, okay there's something here there's like a there's a consumer demand but maybe not a like an industry acknowledgement so we backed them um and they basically soon came to the, the the idea of crowdfunding for pre-sales. So yeah. to basically sell a phone before they'd made it. Um, and that was super successful. And they sold like well over 10 million euros worth of phones, like, you know, in the first in the first few days. And they used that money to then invest in like um making sure that they could they could produce fair electronics. That was Fair Phone One, which I think was launched in 20. 2013-2014 now like really successful company um just just released a fairphone 5 um they you know with each phone they've improved the kind of ethical yeah. approach and the sustainability approach particularly um so they've they've gone from a team of like you know two or three people with not even a prototype in their case to be honest um, to being like you know a very large company, and we know they've had an impact on the wider industry as well. They've they've really been noticed by the larger companies mm. who've basically clocked. Oh, hang on, like we need to be we need to be able to show that our supply chain is better as well. So, yeah, that's that's just one example of the the kinds of investments that we'd like to make. Cool, and that story reminds me of something like a cafe direct, which even if they di- disappeared tomorrow the effect they've had on the what counts as normal practices in the rest of the coffee industry is now so different from where it was. And setting a, up a competitive rival, which seems to be stealing customers, is yep. in a way, in that sense, is the most successful campaign you can have. People pay Exactly. Them. And it, yeah, and, and I, there's, there's several founders in our portfolio who are former campaigners. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's quite interesting. Like the sort of, I think there's, you know, campaigning is really, really valuable, but actually maybe it has changed a bit and actually like, um, you know, potentially demonstrating things practically has become a, a valid, yeah. you know, way, way of campaigning as much as uh, sort of lobbying and media work and so on um, uh, used to be. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting change. And I think there's also an overlap in skill sets in that if you're going to be a successful startup CEO, you need to be selling your thing your your business and whatever it's going to be able to sell to potential investors and not just for the next round, but be able to picture what the whole of that sale whole of that journey is to a point of being a successful business. So you've got to I think so, yeah. Keep the it's hype it, going it, and being a campaigner who knows how to get people excited about big abstract long term goals is probably a very important skill set. Yeah, I think that the the storytelling side of it is 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 you know it, it's something that we we look for in founders it's like you know mm. um can this can this person like tell a story over a long time because it you know 
startups aren't quick. <laughs> I mean, I know they have this <laughs> they have this reputation of of like it's all like super super fast and like there's all these overnight successes. The the, the truth is that um, you know overnight successes tend to be a decade in the making, and it's yeah. like that 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 ability to 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 tell a consistent story and to adapt it and to change it and to like improve it over time is something that we look for in founders because i think it's it's a really important part of the of the role that's great and then the interesting thing for me as well fairphone is that's a hardware story but i would imagine that most of your investments are much more on the software app kind of side that's where i think yes. of tech for good so do you have a another an example from that software side yeah, so another example would um, uh, would be Aperito, which most you know most of your listeners won't won't have heard of. They're they're a little bit in the background, but they were actually started by a former nurse at Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, and she was working with uh, with kids, obviously. Um, and they one of the things that she would be would be part of a job was to to have kids who are part of clinical trials. So it's it's an important part of clinical trials that you check that they are that they work like you know with with children as well mm-hmm. and, and and all that kind of stuff. And she just basically noticed they were terrible. Like the the, the way that these clinical trials were were run was awful. You know, asking yeah. a kid to fill in a questionnaire uh, or you know just just didn't really make sense. And she um, was she essentially she in her in her normal time, she's an athlete. She she's sort of um, played rugby for Wales and um, right. has rode across the Atlantic and things like that. So she was super aware of things like wearables. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, well, I'm sure we can capture this data like using technology and then essentially like kind of um, process it. And so she, she set up Aperito to be essentially a technology that helps uh, collect data, particularly around children, uh, when when people aren't in hospital mm-hmm. and feed that into clinical trials, um, and that's that's a really important development. It actually turns out that like yeah that that means that more clinical trials can be completed, uh, that the, you actually get to the threshold of successful data more often, mm-hmm. and that has particular relevance for slightly for rarer diseases where there's a smaller number of people who can actually be part of the clinical trial. Full stop. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so so they are not a hardware business. They just use you know standard wearables to collect the, to collect the data um, and actually cameras as well now as um, as well. Um, but there's the software that they created basically collects that data, formats it in the way that is that is uh, needed for for clinical trials, and helps those um, you know, pharmaceutical companies or um, or, or the, the people who are running clinical trials to to, to do them more effectively. So. Yeah, that's much more of a software business, and they, you know, they they, they sell big contracts to uh, companies that are creating new medical interventions. Cool, and it also makes me think about how, um, in a way, thinking about, for want of a better phrase, the extreme user can help you to create something which is so broadly applicable that it opens up um, many more uses than you perhaps were imagining when you just focused on that one extreme user type. Yeah, I think so. I'd, and certainly, one another thing that we look for in founders is is like um, it's quite a pointy uh, experience of the problem. Right. So we we want people who come to us with a quite a generic explanation of the problem and at a more sort of societal level. We're like, okay, but what's the what's the what's the problem as it fa- as people face it? Mm-hmm. So um, 
that again, that for us, like if people can explain that to us or explain their insight on that to us, that again is more promising from our point of view around the, the, the product and the venture that they're trying to build. So again, it's something that we look for is, you know, do, do people have, um, like, can they teach us something about the problem that yeah. people that people face that we don't know? Because you, all of us can read the research reports about diabetes but if you can like sort of teach us something about the problems that that people who are um, either pre-diabetic or have diabetes face um then that's interesting yeah and so there's something something about having that pointy explanation which uh you're more likely to be able to generate a business from because it is more closer to the consumer inside or the user or client wherever the right level of it yeah. is I'm not. I'm not sure. Pointy is a technical. Term, no, no. no. Point, but, just yeah. <laughs> using your language back to you. Um, but we, uh, and but often we, that will come from a personal. It doesn't have to, but often comes from a personal experience, which is why yeah. there's often a story of entrepreneurs founding a business to to scratch the itch that they had and nobody else was it was scratching for them. Exactly, and I, I think either having that experience um, personally or through family or through um, or, or professionally. Again, that's yeah, that that direct or like nearly direct experience is is a good is a good sign for us. Cool. So let's move on into methods and practices. So, what are the methods and practices you use to to support your work to to and to decide what what to invest in, decide what to do next? What's what's the methods you use there? Um. So the way that we invest is quite unusual. For, for, a, for a venture capital firm. So um, we run an open call for applications every um, six months. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not the way that normal VC firms uh, do it. They, they, they tend to be uh, a lot more kind of sort of behind the scenes, really. And like um, it's, it's quite a closed process in general, yeah. whereas we're completely open about it. We're like, here you go. We're <laughs> we're open for applications. Um, if you've got, if you've got an idea or a, a business that you think we sh- we should be backing, then then please apply here. Um, we then have this process where everybody who applies online, we we use our community of existing founders and mentors and our team mm-hmm. to try and shortlist those down. So to make sure that we're just looking at the ones that fit our criteria around tech for good. Um, and then to score them around a few different dimensions, which are essentially the importance of the problem, the ingenuity of the solution, essentially, like does it is it is it something new, um, and the quality of the team. And um, then we interview the top fifty-ish of those of the people who apply, or the top um, ventures that apply. And we uh, select then the top 10 to 12 of those to make investments into um, after an interview. Sorry, I should say the shortest thing goes to an interview, which then goes to us making the choice of 10 to 12 ventures every six months. And you've spoken a little bit about the decision point and the criteria you're looking for there. I mean, being an open call sidesteps one of the problems about exclusivity for a lot of VCs. Like part of the test is, can you get a good introduction? Because... For some VCs, they use that to see how entrepreneurial you are. But of course, that tends to bias towards uh, white men who went to Oxford, frankly, um, yeah. or MIT. Um, how how do you form those judgments at those key moments? So you've got like the, the different people involved in them. Are they scoring against a very uh, narrow assessment sheet or 
Are people bringing in their intuition and how do you deal with biases and all of that process? Yeah, so I wouldn't describe it as a narrow set of criteria. Is that there is a set um, you know, scoring system, if you like, mm. which everybody signs up to use. Um, but the people who are ranking teams, so every every application will be uh, scored by at least five people, usually usually more, to be honest. And we're deliberately trying to choose people from like quite diverse backgrounds to help score mm-hmm. teams. So we're, so you're getting various different perspectives on on this one idea um, in that process. I think that's important. Um, and certainly, like we, I mean, we have a bit of a like no warm intros rule. Mm-hmm. In that, it, it, you know, it, even if somebody does get a warm intro to us, they still go through that process. Like, there's no, there's no way around that, yeah. that, that, that process. We haven't yet managed to do it in a way that is um, kind of blind, for want of a better word, in terms of, um, you know, we try to minimise all of the sort of signs of background and so on in our application process but because the founders are such an important part of Mm. the you know the application as it were we haven't managed to completely uh, sort of take them out whereas you know when we're doing uh, recruitment for example we do use a blind application system for you know people applying for jobs we haven't quite managed to work out how to do that for ventures i have to admit yeah um but yeah, but I think what we've ended up with is is a much more diverse portfolio than most venture capital firms in Europe. So um, you know, basically forty percent female uh, founded businesses, um, like nearly a third from ethnic minorities, like, you know, good good percentage from mm. you know, people uh, with disabilities and so on. So like our our portfolio has ended up being much much more diverse than most venture capital firms, and that's. That is pretty deliberate on our point of view because we think that actually to solve a diverse set of social and environmental problems, you need a diverse set of people. Um, so it, it's been quite deliberate on our from our point of view to make sure that we're trying to reach founders from very different backgrounds. Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't say our system is perfect, but it's it's it's, it's turned, the outcome has been pretty good. Well, and also to go back in a little bit in our conversation a more diverse set of people are more likely to have had those pointy experiences and to have been direct exactly. or adjacent to the challenges that they're trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, there was a lot of criticism of Silicon Valley in a particular era a few years ago in that like, basically ah. every startup was solving the problems of people who worked in Silicon Valley who were all like, you know, um, white dudes who'd gone to Ivy League schools. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's no... There's, there's definitely a correlation between mm. like having diversity of backgrounds with diversity of like social and environmental challenges that we're addressing. And potentially going after markets and opportunities which are being ignored by others and therefore you can stand a chance of getting a higher return from because there's less competition. Yeah, and I, I mean, we, we, we avoid competition from investors quite a lot anyway because we go so early. So mm. we're, we're very unusual to, get, to invest like at that stage um and um but it does mean that sometimes we have to like help teams to prove that there's a business here mm-hmm. um, as they go on to raise further capital and i think that's something that we've we've ended up like getting better at over the years as well is sort of you know i mean um to be honest when we first started investing in kind of health stuff mm. uh, the vc world was very skeptical <laughs> yeah. and that's completely changed now and obviously covid completely 
like blew that myth out the water, the idea that, you know, that you couldn't build large businesses that would be important um, in, in that space. But yeah, I think we, we found ourselves having to convince the rest of the investment world that particular problems are sort of business worthy, if you like, yeah. uh, quite often. Cool. Uh, moving on to our next question. What's the biggest challenge you, challenges you faced and how have you overcome them? They, to be honest, the biggest challenge that you face as a sort of small venture capital firm is is raising the capital to put into yeah. the startups in the first place. So raising the funds on our side, um, and there's a few there's a few issues with it. To be honest, one is that um, yeah, that the investment world is basically made up of very very huge numbers. So you know, um, if you're the Black Rocks or the, you know, those those kinds of organizations of the world, you're managing, well, I think now trillions, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, so putting a few million to work in a, in a fund like ours just doesn't make any sense. So there's quite a big disconnect between the world of big finance and what we do. And in some ways, we're not really part of the financial services sector. We're, we're like <laughs> this little, little tiny adjunct um, somewhere along the line. And so that, that disconnect between institutional investors and what we do as a, as a small venture capital firm focused on impact is that's, that's big. Mm. Um, and, and so that, that does make our job of raising capital quite hard. It means we have to be super entrepreneurial actually in terms of how we raise capital and who we raise it from. Um, and that, to be honest, I'd like, I wish it didn't take up quite so much of our time because we could put all that time into like, you know, supporting the ventures. But the truth is like that um, running a small VC firm, you have to put a lot of resource into actually you know, making sure you've got the capital to invest in the startups in the first place. And in that way, your experience mirrors those of your founders that you're investing in. Yeah, yeah. And where, where I mean, typically, where, where who are who is investing in you? If it's the large institutional investors, effectively, you're not even a rounding error, so they can't even find you to give you any money. Who yeah. is who is giving you money, investing in you, rather? So, I, I, having said all that, I do think it is changing a bit. And right. I think they, they, they think that in the future, the kind of thing that we do, particularly the impact side of what we do, is going to be a bigger part of what they do. And so they're willing to innovate around the edges. So they're willing to, like, bend their rules a little bit when it comes to, like, you know... I won't say dipping their toe in the in the water. I mean, it is a toe for them, but it's like yeah, it's a really significant <laughs> amount of money for us. Um, so, so we do have some yeah, some some of the big players are investors um, in our funds. The actually, um, we through, throughout our history, we have also um, uh, raised money from essentially public and quasi-public sources of funding as well, and that that's that's not unusual for venture capital in the UK. Um, I think that the largest single investor in UK venture capital funds is, is the British British Business Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also raised capital from Big Society Capital, which was created uh, from dormant bank account money, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the money that nobody has claimed, that just sits there. Um, and, yeah, the, um, well, actually, Labour government and then the Conservative government uh, created Big Society Capital to try and like do something good with that money whilst it's just sitting there. And, and Big Society Capital was one of the outcomes of that. And then uh, we did also have some, some capital from the Cabinet Office um, in our early days, which helped when, when we were subscale, if you like, um, which helped cover some of the, the costs of supporting the startups as well. So, so yeah, we've, we've it's been a mixture of you know public and quasi-public money 
And then we're now moving, I would say, more and more towards large private sector investors um, investing in our funds. And I, I think that's probably the, the direction that things will continue. Great. If there's one thing policymakers could do that would make your work significantly easier, what would it be? Um, so there is, there are these large pools of capital who, uh, but at the moment don't have the incentive to really invest in innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, the most, the most sort of high profile at the moment is is the pension funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually government has clocked this, but they haven't yet like really done anything about it. They're sort of they're, they're gently chivying the pension world towards like <laughs> putting more money into innovation effectively. Because yeah. I mean, if I was being mean about it, I'd say essentially the pension funds just reap the benefits of other people funding innovation at the moment yeah. because they don't fund anything that's early stage. They just sit in public markets and and and, and, and bonds. And so, like all of the innovation that, that is going to create those companies in the future, they sort of leave to other people. And to some extent, the, the, the argument in government and various other places is, well, hang on a minute, like, you know, you need to contribute to this as well. Um, and um, but the answer. You were just saying, uh, so our internet connection has gone a little bit. I might have to edit this part out. Uh, you were saying, uh, you, you said and, and then... I mean, we lost you. <laughs> yeah, this, these things um, happen. Uh, I was sorry. Uh, uh, um, and they, um, so so far they haven't forced them to do anything mm-hmm. about it. Um, but I think that government probably does need to put some, you know, actual force behind the discussions. Put some force behind the discussions so that pension funds um, are not just reaping the rewards of past innovation, but also investing in the innovations which will pay the pensions of the future. Exactly. And they're, you know, they, they should have a time frame of, frame of 25, 50 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, my experience of them so far is that they don't. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think we're going to get to a position where, yeah, they, they, government probably will need to um, change the pension system, the, the pensions architecture, if you like, uh, to force that to happen. Great. And then the last question um, is about the future. What are your organisation's priorities on innovation going forward and why? So for us, it's all about like um, encouraging more and more talented people to go into tech for good entrepreneurship and to, and to create startups. So I think you know that the priority for us is like to um, both help to encourage people who maybe didn't think of themselves as like potential founders to to do that, um, and then to support them when they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that first step, I think, is is a super important part of the innovation ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. I think, um, you know, we, there are all kinds of difficulties in, in creating startups that solve social and environmental problems. Um, but it is actually a much better time than it ever has been in the past in terms of the amount of capital, the amount of support, the amount of advice and 
um, and the, the appetite on part of employees and customers and so on than, than we've ever had before. So I think it's a great time, but we do need to make sure that there are like really good people who are, who are taking that path. Right. And I also think, I wonder whether the, um, the ability, like this, the technology itself is more accessible to people with not very much capital. So it's, yeah. there's more technology around that you can start a business with from scratch. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the, the cost of, I would say, trying things out is, mm. is much, much lower than it used to be. Um, and, and the tools that are available are much, much more accessible. So that also adds to the, um, uh, almost the, like the ease of starting, um, but you still, there's lots of other things that you need other than just that, yeah. um, you know, those tools. But, but yeah, it is much, it's much, much easier technically now to, to try things out than it was even, even five years ago. Wonderful. Well, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Paul, thank you very much. On the note of trying to have as many people as possible joining in, starting new businesses to address those important social and environmental problems. If people do have an experience that they want to turn into a business, then you've got an open call on the Bethel Green Ventures website. Um, and please try it out. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for having me.